Gracious Heavenly Father, we come again before you, confessing this is your word, breathed out precisely as you saw fit to do so and preserve for us as it is scripturated. Lord, you've given us this word as your covenant people, and yet, Lord, we're so hard of hearing and weak, and so we ask, Lord, that your gracious spirit would grant us grace this day, and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are receptive, ready, willing to believe what you have for us. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed magnify your Son in our midst, that the good news of the gospel as it is presented in him would come to us anew, refresh, again and again, and Lord, that we would find hope and life in believing. So we do ask, Lord, grace for your people this time, grace for the one who speaks on your behalf, in order that your name might be magnified in all the earth. It's in Christ's name that we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. John, 1 John chapter 4, starting verse 7, please give me full attention, this is the word of God. Beloved, let's love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Grass withers, and the flowers fall, the word of our Lord endures forever. We're years ago. The place where we were living, I was starting an internship pastoral internship, and we began seeing signs around town, and even in front of some theologically compromised uh, churches who abandoned scripture. These signs were intended to convey a meaning. It said things like, love is love, right? Or we do, I do, the the flag, the rainbow, uh, pride flag behind um, these statements, right? Love is love. It's not just a, uh, it's a apology, something repeating itself. There's a meaning to that. There's an intention. This, of course, was kind of in your face aggressive um, homosexual promoting uh, sentiment behind these. And those who do these kinds of things show that what they really think about the primacy and the authority of the self, right? And what little they care or understand about God, who he truly is. Because if you define love however you want, God becomes whatever you want him to be, even if that's the opposite of whom he is in reality. God is love. To them, really meant, I am God. Well, our passage today is a kind of transition in the letter. This is just one of many uh, distortions of Scripture that we see. But there's a transition here in the letter, uh, John's first epistle. I uh, remember how John writes. Right? I remember John's style, uh, this kind of recursive uh, spiral nature of what he does. He repeated patterns 
that reflects uh, a norm uh, that we see in Jewish literature. I, I remember I told you uh, in the past that when you first learn to study Greek in seminary, uh, you learn 1 John because my professor would say, it's like baby Greek. And we would think, if this is baby Greek, <laughs> uh, we don't stand a chance. Uh, because it can be very confusing when you first start reading it because these recurring themes. But this is a distinction of uh, characteristic of Jewish literature, <laughs> this uh, recursive nature. And John certainly has themes in his writings that he repeats when he comes back to and returns to. Uh, love, God's love, is one of John's repeated themes. We see it throughout his writings. We've seen it already uh, a number of times in chapter 2 and 3, and, uh, and then here again in 4. Um, he's told us that God's love for us in Christ is the basis, for, you remember, for our love for him. It's the basis for our loving at all, for loving others, for loving one another. And now here again, we see God's love for us is expanded upon. It's been a while since uh, I have encouraged uh, all of us to read these books of the Bible in one sitting. Right. Large chunks, the whole thing uh, should be read that way. I encourage you again not to do so. Um, you really should. First John is a letter, after all. It was intended to be read or heard in one sitting, not fragmented up. And this is difficult for some people. I know it's hard. Nevertheless, we have to find ways to build the mental muscles and the stamina uh, so we can get God's Word into us and we get into God's Word. One way you can do that, getting God's word, the intake of God's word into your mind and into your uh, being is to listen, right? To listen to it. There's so many ways to listen to God's word. It's, it's rather easy uh, these days. And so this hearing, this oral input is a great way to get the whole thing, right? Hearing it. Uh, some people benefit from reading along while it's being read to them. Uh, this is a way to grow your stamina and indeed get the, get the whole of it, um, it's a wonderful thing. So if you want to boost your biblical literacy and benefit from this life-giving, vital, crucial God-given means of grace, take it in whole meals, right? Not just little snacks. Get a whole meal of God's word. Uh, we miss elements. If we don't do this. We miss elements, um, right? When we fragment and break up the flow of what's going on. But when we do read it, and we do take in the whole thing, we see these repeated themes coming again and again more easily. We see the relationships and the connections uh, they're there when we do so, reading it in one city. Well, in our passage here, uh, verse 7 to 12, uh, the climactic center, really, the, 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 uh, the thematic center, uh, is one of the most well-known and well-twisted phrases in all of Scripture, right? There's a, there's a handful of phrases, and a handful of verses uh, that the world loves to use out of context, and sadly in the church, their tradition use them out of context, um, We'll look at this today. God is love, and God is love. <clears throat> and answer three questions as we look at this, uh, this idea, God is love. Right? And this question that we should always ask all the time in our Bible study, in our, in our Bible reading. Um, remember, we optimize our time in Scripture. First, we must understand what it says. Right? And so if you remember from a few years back, when we were studying prayer, I offered uh, that this this these steps into understanding Scripture and putting it into uh, our hearts and uh, uh, resulting in doxology, praise. And that was you go from passage to the point and then ponder what that is in prayer. Right? So passage, point, ponder, prayer. Right? It ties your reading and studying into your devotion, into our doxology. 
And so one of those questions that we'll look at today, those questions that are helpful for all of uh, our reading, uh, there's three. The first one is, what's that? And then, so what? And then, now what? What's that? So what? And now what? What does it mean? And then, why does it matter? And then, what does it mean in my life as a child of God? Uh, We must ask the first two before we ask that third. Right. What is it? What does it matter? And what does it mean in my life as a child of God? First, what does it mean? Uh, verse 7 says, Beloved, love, let us love one another. He tells us to love one another. Why? Because God says, Love is from God. And then verse 8 is going to say, God is love. Love is from God. God is love. The first seven goes on and says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you're joined to God through Christ by the Spirit, we are love-filled and we're love-enabled. We're filled with His love and we're able to love others. As I mentioned, verse 8 gets maligned quite often. Right? It's often made to mean something other than what it actually means. So I... We have to begin with uh, some basic understanding of what John means when he says God is love. Uh, is it reversal? Right? Some said God is love, love is God. No, of course not. It's not love is God. It's not the way language works, particularly. Uh, this is an irreversible structure, it's very clear. Uh, the original, uh, love is not God. God is love. What does that mean? When we look at God's word, we say this says quite a lot about God. Right? It's kind of Theocentric, uh, Christocentric, really. But we see this construction not just here in verse 8, God is something. Um, we see it all over the place in Scripture. The Bible never contradicts itself, right? That's a given, or rather, it's uh, something that we recognize about Scripture. Right? God's word will bear reflection to God's character. Uh, God does not lie, God is, uh, will not contradict himself. Right? It's not going to be against God's character. So it's not going to say things that are opposite um, of God that are the opposite of him and say that he's that other thing. Right? It's not going to say, say God's good and God's evil, or God's faithful and he's unfaithful, or he's just and then he's unjust. But what do we find when we look at this, search the scriptures for this structure? God is, not just as God is love. There's just a brief list, and I'm not going to give you all the verses um, for time's sake. It says God is, we read, a consuming fire. God is a merciful God. God is our dwelling place. God is my strong refuge. God is mighty. He is a righteous judge. God is our, is our salvation. God is a spirit. God is light. God is, perhaps most famously, holy, holy, holy. And then in Deuteronomy, we hear about this covenant Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh. Deuteronomy 7 we read this, know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Yes, that God is love. And then verse 10, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. What do we have in all of this? All of these things that God is, these qualities, his attributes. And then in this last passage, we see the love of God lifted up and praised. 
right before, there with it we see God's justice and his wrath. And we see his wonderful attributes of God's characteristics of God. And in fact, as theologians speak of this, they say that God is his attributes, right? God is his attributes. And this is, in a way, that is unique only to God, the creator, right? We are not our attributes because we're not immutable, right? We change. God is unchanging. I can change from being discouraged to being encouraged. I can change from being depressed to being joyful. Most of us at some age change from being able to read unaided with glasses to needing glasses to read. Right? And so if an attribute of a person perhaps is that I have two thumbs, well, if I get an accident and lose one of my thumbs, my life's changed or my attributes have changed. And so creatures aren't synonymous with their attributes. Uh, but the Creator is. And God is just. God is holy. He's merciful. Those aren't changing. God is wrathful. Perfectly. God is love. God is righteous. God is all of these things. And this means that we can't take any one of them, these actors, any one of these things that are true of God uh, and make it absolute. Right? God's love doesn't crowd out or drown out all of his other attributes. In fact, the only attribute that seems to be elevated in Scripture is his holiness. His holiness. Right? Scripture never says God is love, love, love. It never says God is wrath, wrath, wrath. But it does say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? So it's manifold attributes uh, to who God is. But love is not the chief attribute. It doesn't trump the others or push the others out. Contrary to many, many people's beliefs, God does not change from being a God of wrath and then being a God of love in the New Testament. Right? We compromise and violate uh, who God is, right? his immutability, his unchangeable reality. So what does it mean that God is love? God is love. <clears throat> well, love is just one of many attributes of God. And then we have always to keep uh, in mind, to keep what we're reading, uh, looking at the context of what John says this when we read things. John's point is that we love one another because God is love. Right? We are like the one who has redeemed us because he has redeemed us. We're to bear that reflection that we're conformed more to the image of Christ. Right? And we see that John does not have this um, ambiguous definition of love. Right? Notice how he describes, or he describes in the finance how God is love. It's not this ambiguous um, kind of feeling, right, love. It's not a sappy, mushy, Hollywood, hallmark kind of emotion. But the concrete reality, right, what is it? It's the concrete reality of the incarnation of Christ. That's how God is love. That's the context. Remember, there are these cedars trying to pull out of the church, denying that Christ came in the flesh. John is again and again emphasizing uh, those who do not confess this are not of Christ and of God. Verse 9. And this love of Christ was manifest among us. There it is. That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. That's the context. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. God's love. God is love, right? What is that? It's the incarnation. That's what it means. The incarnation is what 
uh, what it means when John says God is love. God's love was concretized, if you will, in the incarnation, right? That's the what's that. What about so what, right? This is the case we already uh, you know, overlapped into this, the so what. Why the incarnation? Why did God send his one and only son, Jesus, into the world? Because he loves you. Because he loves us. We were sinners fallen in need of redemption. Verse 10 says, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when, while we were enemies, he sent his son to be our sacrifice, to die in our place, to suffer in our place, that we would have life came to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Our love for God and one another flows from and follows his fire love for us. Our love is grounded in God's fire love. He loved us first. And that's what it means for us. That's the so what? It's our life. It's life. And having a new life means what? It means that we respond with a new heart, loving God and loving one another. <clears throat> as commanded, because it's the natural outflow of the reality of a heart made new, the beast of Christ, right? And so that's the what's that and the so what, but now the what now, right, or now what? What are the implications of receiving God's love? Well, John tells us in the last few verses here, 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Those who are loved in the Lord will love the people of the Lord. Those who are loved of the Lord will love the Lord's people. The evidence must must match the claim. Think of uh, sports teams, sports fans. If you are such a person or you know someone like this, right? Fill in the the team. Sport, then they, what will they do, right? If I'm a fan of X, I'm going to root for that team. I'm going to know the players of that team. I'm going to watch the games. I'm going to be familiar with the record, right? And on and on. It's obvious who you are when we see these things. Or what about literature, right? Uh, what about lovers of Shakespeare, for instance? They're not going to be ignorant of his writings, or his influence, right? or his mastery, the voluminous writings that he did. They all know what a sonnet is, right? They'll know the lines. They'll know et uh, brute, right? So they'll know what that means. They won't be able to, don't mispronounce it, be clear to them. They know nothing of these things. They never read Shakespeare, or the, the, the fan never watches uh, the games. And it shows no evidence that this is true, or counter-evidence, right? Barring another kid's jersey, right? We would doubt their claim of who they are. We have every reason to seriously Doubt that person's claim. And so, in the same way, it's unthinkable and impossible for John. And it should be for us as well, therefore, that somebody could claim to love God, to walk in the light, to claim to be indwelt by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to have been redeemed from the bondage of Satan, sin and death, and yet not love his brother and sister in Christ. It's unthinkable for John. It's no small thing. 
God has redeemed us by his son and dwelt us by the Holy Spirit, that he will produce the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Trees may new bear good fruit of righteousness and love one another. So John says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's no prayer almost. He's saying in verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. I don't know if you ever thought about that verse. That might sound strange uh, when you think about it. Um, on first reading, how can God's love be perfected? This is God's love perfect. How can it be perfected in us? Is it lacking? Is it incomplete? Well, no. Of course it is not. What does he say? No one's ever seen God. No one's ever seen God. This is reminiscent of what we heard in the New Testament uh, reading this morning, John 1.18. I've never seen God, but the Son has executed him. Is what it is. He's made him known. He's revealed him. No one's ever seen God, but Christ reveals him. Right? That's what verse 12 is getting at when it says this. God's love. God is love. Christ is the manifestation of that love. Christ has redeemed us. Right? Our loving one another reveals the love of the invisible God. Right? So it's our love that reveals God who can't be seen, but it's because Christ has loved us. Christ was the love of God incarnate. Right? And we, as amazing as it is, are the manifestation of God's love in the church and in the world when we love one another. Right? Christ's people are the incarnation of Christ's love in the church and in the world. And can you see, brothers and sisters, how radically different this is? How radically different uh, this is from what the world means by love. Right? The world's love is not all you need. It's not. They don't mean the love of God revealed in Christ. <clears throat> Right? It's contrary to embarrassing signs or insulting signs. Uh, love is not love in the way that they mean it. Love is not love. Right? That sentiment is simply autonomous self-worship is all that it is. It's an aggressive spit in the face of God to deny these things. <clears throat> and promote contrary things. Right? Any Bible distorted love is perverse, right? regardless of what that looks like. And it's manful, right? God says what love is. God says what love is. He defines it's not a gushy feeling or merely an emotion. And also, notice love is not like incubated. It's contagious, right? It's communicable. It doesn't stay within. God's love doesn't just stay inside. It goes out. It's outward. The love of God is perfected when it is shown to others. According to the world, what is the highest object of love? The highest object of love according to the world is me. It's the self. But God cannot be the ultimate object of our love if we are. And how often do we put God second, behind ourselves, when we choose our way uh, over his way? I know God says this, but I really want that way, so I'll choose it and I'll rationalize it later and justify my way. We see it in our own lives, Certainly, see it all the time in culture, right? In the movies, but it's just not true. 
that if we love one another, nothing else matters. It's not true. It's a lie. Because it's contrary to what God's word has said. It's merely self-worship. How much more beautiful and true life-giving is the truth of what God's love is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ? A friend of mine said it like this. Love is ultimately defined by God revealed in Christ who came and died for us, who hated him to be a propitiation for our sins and find his fulfillment, not when we love ourselves, but when we love God and love others. Dying to our love of self and pouring out that love upon others, even those others who are against us and those who the world says, is it okay to hate? But Christ tells us something different, right? He tells us something different than what the world says. Remember in Luke, Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And do good and land, expecting nothing in return. And your, your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, what? Even as your father is merciful. Christian ethic, right? The Christian ethic is so bound up and grounded in love. Not love as some sort of generic, amorphous, nebulous thing out there. It's, you can't touch. Not love is some kind of thing that can be defined as many ways as there are people, times their fickle changing films. Love, love is defined by Jesus, his incarnation, and his life and death for rebels like you and like me. And that's it, brothers and sisters. That's it. From what the Lord has told us here, there's a fitting response. There is a fitting response. There's a fitting down what? And it's what Scripture, on the whole, agrees with. It's what all Scripture agrees with. It's that we must love one another because we have been greatly loved by Christ Jesus the Lord. And we must love even those who are difficult to love. Just like we were difficult to love. Just like we at times are still difficult to love. And not everybody is lovable. Not, not everyone's easy to love. It's hard sometimes to love. Many times we want to just love those uh, who are like us. And that's natural for us. But what does that mean when we isolate our love to those who are like us? <clears throat> it means we're loving ourselves, right? Uh, and then we're just loving those who are easy to love instead of loving the unlovable, those who we find difficult to love. It means that we, uh, rather we should follow our Savior. It means we must sacrifice our own desires. Right? We must consider the needs of others more important than our own. And that means not running away when there's conflict or offense. Right? <clears throat> Pretending that this never happened or just shutting down the relationship. Right? Oh, wow, if we've seen this. That's not loving at all. But in love and humility, patiently, uh, we tell them their offense. We work through these things to reconcile. Our reconciliation is an important thing for the Lord. God knows us. And the problems we will have is giving us a way through these things in his word. We're not left to just bolt and run away or figure it out ourselves. He's told us what we need to do. That's part of what love is. Right? He's not holding grudges or keeping record of wrongs and sins sin committed against us. Right? It means forgiving when we're sinned against. It means uh, that, that we manifest and reveal that love of God to one another. Right? Love is defined 
and Christ. The Savior who entered his creation to accomplish the work set before him, covenanted before time, than the Godhead, to save the people whom God had set his love upon, to be his most treasured possessions. The Savior did just that for all those that call on him in faith. While we were hostile and had no love for him, while we were surely unlovable, this Jesus, what he poured out his love upon us, and he poured out his life for us, and gave us everything in love without expecting anything in return. So let's always remember, brothers and sisters, that love is defined by the concrete reality of the incarnation of Christ. And so let's go back into the world, back down from the mountain of God, refreshed, meeting with Him, and renewed and filled up with this love and this truth, taking it into a world in such need of that love. Let us resist the world's distorted definitions of love, but instead look to Christ and show and tell them what true love is, and tell them where they can come and hear about the Christ of the Incarnation and experience that love for themselves. And we remember, brothers and sisters, that God is love, and therefore let us love one another to his glory. Amen. Amen. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have given us to love. Lord, we confessed it before and until we had tasted the love of Christ. We have no ability to love. We don't know what love is. So we pray, Lord, that we would be loving one another, that we would be patient with one another. Lord, that we would take that love in the world. Lord, we pray that the outside world would see what is different about us. Our love for one another, our love for them. Undeserving as it is, Lord, help us to be Christ-like in our living, in our loving, and in our walk. Help us to believe, Father, what you say about us, that we're dead in sin, and made new to walk in newness of life, to walk in the good works that we were created to walk in. Father, we pray that we would go forth in faith, trusting in Jesus. They will conform us Everyone with his image, the power of the Spirit. Um, thank you and praise you. In Christ's name. Amen.